Renee will be next uh, back next week. Parker Moser, Jason Fissler, it's good to see the two of you have both survived Krampusnacht. Means you guys must have been good this year. Bless you. So, uh, no, I had to fight yeah, my way out. Yeah, I, I was I was terrible this year. It was it was horrible trying to survive. Parker Parker got himself a good lawyer. I guess uh, th- there's an anti uh, vengeful uh, Germanic Christmas myth demon out there who's very good. He works pro bono. So. Yeah, you'd be surprised how many there are. Well, and so what that means we're what 19 days away from Christmas, and uh, if. If you're one of those sentimental types that like a white Christmas, um, the National Weather Service released their forecast for the rest of December. It's a 50-50 chance. Um, they are predicting a higher probability for above-average temperatures in Michigan, uh, which means it's going to be a little bit warmer, and that uh, it calls for equal chance the Lower Peninsula sees average participa- precipitation levels for December, which means it's going to be a little bit warmer and not any more precipitation. So, uh, But i got to be honest, guys, I feel like we have snow more often on opening day than we actually do on Christmas. Yeah, uh, thinking back to when I was a kid, opening day always seemed to be 70 degrees and sunny, and then as as I got a little older, then it, it just seemed to get a little colder. And then December, I do remember a lot of white Christmases as a kid. But now it's like, hey, 50 degrees, not too bad. You know, maybe a little bit of rain. So we'll take it. Right, I do. I don't like I, I do. I do wish that like it, in April, it, the weather did turn. We're not always that doesn't always happen. Uh, winter sticks around a little too long. But um, we, well, we've gotten say- used to it, you know. I got to say, Jace, that's my big concern for the NFL draft this year. Late April, yeah. it, it, it's not guaranteed we're not going to be seeing snow. Uh, it, it, you know, if there's a lot of outdoor events, people from out of town better bundle up. Yeah, and I think uh, I think uh, with our reputation of our weather, I think people will. Well, but are they going to? Have you heard? Are they going to have like? A, are they going to have like a partition down there for that? Like I've seen that in other cities with the draft where they have like an overhang and stuff like that. Honestly, I think they should do it inside. I think they should do it inside Ford Field or, or whatever because um but but I don't think they have I don't think they've actually said if it's going to be indoors or outdoors, but I think, I think they, they should hedge their bets outdoors. But then again, I don't think it's I don't think it's set in stone yet. Well, hopefully they have a lot of space heaters just in case. Right. And uh, speaking of uh, professional sports here, Jace, it looks like it's begun. The NCAA president uh, Baker Charlie Baker, that is, sent a letter to more than 350 Division I schools saying he wants to create a new tier of NCAA Division I sports where schools would be required to pay at least half their athletes uh, a minimum of $30,000 a year through a trust fund. It also proposed uh, allowing D1 schools to offer unlimited education benefits. I'm guessing that means scholarships and enter into NIL deals with athletes, which great schools can now get in on the action after they were the only ones allowed to make money off these athletes for decades. Uh, the proposal would cover all sports where the athletic departments um, from the power five schools, they'll be able to operate independently while competing against other D one schools. And my question is why the other D one schools are going to get screwed and left in the dust. So like what's there to compete against? I don't know if you've, if either of you have been following this, but it seems like it's a good deal for I don't know Ohio State swimming because all the all the sports in the Power Five conferences are going to get in on this. But if you're a if you're a Mac school, if you're Boise State, I think this widens the gap. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's it's a long time coming. They do make so much money off these kids. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you go back a few years ago, and a lot of these schools were, were getting rid of these kind of sports, like swimming and stuff during the pandemic. And it's nice to see that a lot of that stuff has come back. Yeah, and I don't know what the answer is to make it equitable amongst all the D1 schools. Because, like I said, this seems like it's good for for all the uh, all the sports at, at the Power Five schools. But I I think it's good. It, there, it's going to definitely be more so haves and haves nots. So we will see. Obviously, um, the athletic directors from the major schools seem uh, somewhat happy about it. Um, immigration has emerged as a key hurdle to President Biden's pitch for Ukraine and Israel aid. Fox's Jared Halpern has more from the White House. Republicans in the House and Senate are pressing for stronger immigration enforcement and asylum laws as part of a $106 billion supplemental spending bill for Ukraine, Israel, the Indo-Pacific, and border security. If Republicans want to have a serious conversation about immigration reform, we're ready to do that. But, you know, we also need them to move expeditiously and take action now. Deputy White House Press Secretary Olivia Dalton says President Biden submitted immigration reform legislation his first day in office. The White House budget director warns it will be very challenging to continue military assistance to Ukraine without new funding from Congress by the end of the year. At the White House, Jared Halpern, Fox News. FBI Director Christopher Wray said that the threat of a terrorist attack is and has been at an all-time high since the October 7th attack on Israel by Hamas at a hearing in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee yesterday. Senator Lindsey Graham, he asked Ray, using a blinking red light analogy about 9-11, he said all the lights were blinking before 9-11, apparently. Would you say there's multiple red lights out there? To which Ray answered, I see blinking red lights everywhere. Ray told Graham that since the October 7th attack, a veritable rogues gallery of former ter- of foreign terrorists has called for attacks against the United States. And a bulletin actually went out to law enforcement nationwide to be on heightened alert. Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville, he's ending his blockade on hundreds of military promotions that has lasted months, at least back through the summer and even earlier than that. Tuberville, who used to be the head coach at Auburn, yes, that Tommy Tuberville, said that he would not approve any military promotions until they revise their policy on covering abortions. Uh, holds for all military personnel, three stars and below, that's been lifted, so they'll get their promotion. Uh, but one remains in place for about 10 nominations for four-star generals and officers. And uh, imagine dedicating your whole life to the military, and then this this dude comes along and uh, he holds up your promotion, something that you've worked for your entire life over some grandstanding. Uh, yesterday was described as the most intense day of fighting in Gaza. As Israel continued to advance south, Israel continues to investigate the eyewitness accounts of horrific rapes by Hamas during the October 7th attack on Israel from freed hostages, first responders, and survivors from that day. Just horrid, awful stomach-turning accounts that you can't really say on the radio. Uh, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, he had a tense behind the, uh, behind closed-door meeting with families of hostages still in captivity. Shouting matches broke out. The families accused Netanyahu of prioritizing the war with Hamas over freeing their loved ones. The meeting ended when a large group of the family members just got up and left. Israel is considering flooding tunnels under Gaza used by Hamas with seawater 
to draw them out of hiding, and hopefully um, none of those hostages get caught up in the flooding. State Department spokesman Matthew Miller said in a briefing yesterday that a significant proposal was made to Russia to free both Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovitz and local man Paul Whelan, who are both detained in Russian prison. Miller said that this was not a case of them having not responded to us, talking about Russia. They rejected the offer that was on the table, but that this will not deter them from continuing to try to bring the two men home. Uh, I actually reached out to David Whelan's. Uh, that's Paul Whelan's brother. I was trying to get him out to talk. He's, he's getting over an illness, so he has no voice, so he's not able to talk to us. But he told me, quote, this is very disappointing. We had hopes last December that the U.S. government was going to prioritize Paul's freedom, but they have made just one offer this year, and it's been rejected. Meanwhile, Paul continues to try to survive in a godforsaken labor camp, waiting for the U.S. government to be successful. I hope they will try again quickly and more successfully than they did this uh, than they did this time. Uh, the Oxford high school shooter he will learn his sentence on Friday for the shooting death of four fellow students back in 2021, and whether or not he will serve life in prison without parole. His mother, Jennifer Crumbly, she's requesting that her son's, quote, extremely disgusting video evidence of him torturing a, uh, a number of birds, baby birds and, and, and otherwise. Uh, she's asking that that not be used against her in her own trial for manslaughter in connection with the shooting. Jennifer Crumbly's lawyer, Shannon Smith, she wrote in a court filing Monday that the shooter video, uh, the shooter videotaped himself mutilating birds and hid it from his parents, trying to illustrate the point that her client was unaware of his actions and would have tried to get him help if they were. Uh, James and Jennifer Crumbly are the first parents in America charged in a mass school shooting. First thing, WJR. Jason Fissler, Parker Moser in with me. Renee is on vacation. She'll be back next week. And Jason Parker, would you guys consider yourself good drivers? I hope so. I think so. I've been told that I drive like a grandpa, so I'm always very cautious. You know what? I feel like over the past few years, I have started driving like a grandpa more and more. I don't know if uh, my reflexes are are slowing down. I don't know if my night vision is getting worse. But I, I notice more people passing me on the freeway the past few years, and I used to be the one passing people on the freeway. Well, a new report released by AAA says that 60% of all drivers engage in dangerous behavior. The survey identified six types of drivers and a number of risky driving behaviors, which include speeding, distracted driving, aggressive driving uh, as the most dangerous behaviors. Only 40% of the people fit the profile of quote-unquote safe driver. And if uh, we're going off those uh, criteria. 60% sounds low. I would, I would think if people are being honest, y- you would probably say 100% of drivers engage in dangerous behavior. I mean, I know that, uh, you know, I, I, I'm either driving five over or five under the speed limit. Um, I know that, uh, quote unquote, I'm technically distracted when I'm changing radio stations or, or glancing down on my phone if it lights up. Well, even part of the driver's test when I had to take it was changing the radio and putting the radio on. So they, they sort of like incentivize you or not maybe not incentivize, but they teach you that that's an OK distraction. Like there's some distractions that are OK when you're driving and there's some that aren't. Now, do you guys have like the cell phone holder in your car? I, I have mine like right in the center dash. 
No, uh, I need to get one of those. I just use the I just use the good old fashioned cup holder as long as I don't have a, a cup in there. Actually, I used to keep the phone on the seat a lot, and then I'd go, you know go to grab it. You know, I listen to podcasts in the car, and that was a big time distraction. And I got the 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 phone holder, which is definitely uh, well worth the seventeen dollars I paid for it. Yeah, I got mine when I was door dashing, and it's definitely helped out a lot. Now that I'm even like when I'm not doing it anymore, because it's a lot easier to, like you said, you know, change music, change podcasts. Yeah, and Park, I'm still I'm still in that DoorDash game, and and so there's really no excuse for me not to have one, especially with the hands-free driving laws uh, that have been passed. If I'm pulled over, I don't think that I can say. Uh, to the officer, I'm sorry, I was door dashing, and then um, you know the food will be late, so I'll get I'll, I'll get one star delivery, and it, it would just be a total mess. So this this is a, a good reminder for me to get my stuff together and uh, pull the trigger on something to mount my cell phone to the dashboard. And if but, anybody's uh, listening, that's a good uh, Christmas present for Mike. There, any family members listening? There you go. Wow, thanks, Jace. <laughs> I, you know what? I hope you draw me for Secret Santa because uh, you'll know exactly what to give me. Exactly, yeah. Um, so you guys have actually both worked in the restaurant industry. Jason, I know yeah. you were a waiter. Parker, were you a waiter when you worked in restaurants? No, but I was a busser for a little bit, so I did share the tips a bit. Okay, perfect. Uh, so, so good. I'm glad you said that because tomorrow the Michigan Supreme Court, uh, they're scheduled to hear oral arguments on minimum and tipped wage. Now, this hearing centers around a 2018 ballot in- initiative that sought to raise the minimum wage to $12 an hour, which uh, seems kind of quaint and low now. Uh, but nonetheless, it would dramatically increase wages for tipped workers. Essentially, once the initi- initiative gathered enough signatures back before 2012, the Republican legislature, they passed their own bill, increasing the minimum wage uh, to a little bit less than $12 an hour, making the ballot initiative null and void because the initiative targeted the current minimum wage law at the time and and the new law overturned. It's very complicated. But anyway, there's been new minimum wage laws and ballot initiatives since. Um, But the main change for this is that um, it would eventually bring waiters and tipped workers up to minimum wage. And, um, you know, at face value, I can't see how anyone who works off tips would be opposed to this. But so, what are uh, they saying about tips? So there would be no more tipping, or is that well? Yeah, that's what the, that's what the opponents are saying. They're okay. saying that um, you know, if if customers know that waiters are making minimum wage, they'll be less inclined to tip. Right. Food prices will go up, which they've gone up anyway. But yeah, yeah that that's a concern. They think if. Uh, people know that waiters aren't making like $4 an hour or whatnot. They'll be less inclined to tip, which may be, but that doesn't mean they're going to stop tipping. So I no, guess I would ask no. the two of you as former tipped workers, would you be, in, would you be in favor of the minimum wage going up for tipped workers? Or would you be concerned that you'd make less money uh, in the long run because it would cut into tips? You would, you would definitely make less money. The only uh, time that this this would would work in my time in restaurants, if you like, you had to like a like a really slow lunch rush or something like that. Because I worked at a steakhouse, so if you're not doing anything and you're making, I think at the time I made three fifty an hour. Well, then yeah, and then and then and then they want you to clean, and you're like, well, I don't get paid to do that, you know. <laughs> but yeah, and it, 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 once you get into your dinner rush and in st- that stuff, yeah, you you definitely want to be tipped because you're going to make more. Because I definitely. 
most of the time made way more of an average than $12 an hour. I was making $20, $25 an hour. So I think it's really hard to tell until it goes in place because like, like you said, Mike, uh, there will be people that still tip, but there will also be people that cut it back. And I think it really depends on uh, how much prices increase after the uh, waiters and waitresses start getting paid that minimum wage. Because if the end diner isn't feeling that in their wallet as much, I feel like they're going to be a lot more inclined to continue tipping. Yeah, I mean, I, and that's a good point. Obviously, we're, we're speculating and trying to tell the future. But yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I would still tip and I feel like. And well, that's how we're programmed as a society. We're going to tip. Right. Like if you don't tip, like if you go out to eat and you don't tip, it's, it's, it would just be weird. Yeah. I mean, maybe 20, 30 years, kind of once the generation, you know, new generation kind of starts filtering through, it might hurt tipping or it might, it might stick around. Um, you know, I don't know if, um, you know, um, guaranteeing less money with the possibility of more money over the long run. I, I don't know if that's an effective strategy, but we'll see what the Supreme Court, what the Supreme Court rules. And like we said, we'll see what the future holds. Uh, it sounded like something out of a Liam Neeson spy movie. A top U.S. diplomat turns out to be a double agent, a spy for Cuba. Uh, Senior news analyst Marie Osborne has the story on All Talk. Yeah, his name is Manuel Rocha, and he's 73 years old, and he's done this for, get this, 40 years. He's been charged with serving as a secret agent for Cuba, a scheme that prosecutors say was one of the most brazen, long-running betrayals in the history of the U.S. Foreign Service. Prosecutors say Rocha was engaged in the criminal activity since at least 1981. He had previously served in top posts in Bolivia and other posts in Italy, Honduras, Mexico, and the Dominican Republic. He also worked as a Latin American expert for the National Security Council. He was privy to many, many secrets. He was arrested at his Miami home. The Justice Department did not disclose how Rocha came to the attention of Cuba's intelligence operators or operatives. Cuba has a long history, though, of sophisticated intelligence services that target government officials who can be flipped. The Rocha case relies on what prosecutors say were his own admissions made over the last year to an undercover FBI agent who was posing as a Cuban intelligence operative. He bragged to this undercover agent about his long service to the Cuban uh, mole as a Cuban mole in the State Department, and he praised Cuban leader Fidel Castro, calling him Comandante. He met with the undercover agent at a church in an outdoor food court in downtown Miami, and he arrived at these meetings after employing evasive movements on his route. Prosecutors say that was a classic counter-surveillance tradecraft as taught by Cuba's spy masters. Tom, at his first court appearance yesterday, he sat handcuffed crying and was ordered held pending a bond hearing later this week. But we understand this morning that there will be more charges coming against him. Yeah, he was crying, but he got away with it for so long. Been doing this, what, since 1981? Yeah. So how does this, do you think, think. I mean, are we effective? Are U.S. security measures in vetting properly, monitoring uh, 
are our own diplomats. <laughs> you must ask that question. I mean, that is the big question is how did this go on for so long? In fact, you know, he retired. He oh. was working uh, for another company here in his retirement age as a consultant. And so... Um, he, you know, he he finished his career at the State Department, and who knows what he disclosed and why he was not ca- caught before now. And we're heading into JR Morning with Guy Gordon, Lloyd Jackson, and Jamie Edmonds. And I wanted to uh, get the three of your thoughts on this new uh, proposed NCAA Super Division One tier, where uh, NCAA. President Charlie Baker, he sent out a letter to the 350 Division I schools saying that he wants to create a new tier essentially with the Power Five conferences um, where the schools would pay athletes directly at least $30,000. And my read on it is that I think it's great for equality amongst the schools at the Power Five. If I'm, uh, if I'm Alabama track and field, I'm excited. But I, I feel like it, it, it might widen the gulf between the Power Five uh, conference and the rest of Division One. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, the haves and the haves not nots. Yeah, they have more, and the the other folks are going to have less. How do you recruit when you've got this elite division? Yeah, it just it, it, it again the playing field is it's going to be so Uneven. out of whack. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, and my question is, all right. You know, thirty thousand dollars. The school is going to to pay for that, but um, what are they going to take that away from? I know it's not all it's not all the athletes that have to get paid, but that's a pretty sizable chunk of money. And I well, know the term was education are... funds. They're going to take it out of education funds. So are you <laughs> yeah. are you going to deprive the scholastic mission right to fund this? This yeah, new but athletic this, mission. This, your your new pro pro franchise. Yeah, I mean, I get what you're saying, but these schools have like billion dollar endowments and stuff. Some, There's money, right? Some of them do. Right. And but, but remember, you know, the, the, the people bring up those endowments. So much of that money has strings attached that exactly. can only be used for specific things. Right. So yeah, it's a billion dollar endowment, but with a lot of conditions. Mm-hmm. True. So maybe not the endowment, but they, the schools still have. Well, cash flow. Well, and they get millions from television contracts. Right. They do. Right. Well, and, and you know what? Time to share. It's, it's interesting you you bring this up because uh, this proposal also encouraged schools uh, to get in on NIL deals with their athletes, which I think is great. You know, the schools they were in on the actions for decades. They were the ones making money off these athletes, and uh, you know not. Now they're going to try to do some kind of profit sharing thing, and or or whatever they're going to try to get in on these NIL deals. Um, you know, when when the athletes just kind of got some of their own power yeah. back. We should point out this isn't happening in a vacuum. I mean, the NCAA has a gun to its head. They've got the antitrust lawsuits against it. They are facing lawsuits from athletes who are saying that they are being deprived of income that they have earned for these schools. I mean, they're, they're facing some serious legal challenges, and they're trying to get out ahead of it. Yeah, and I think, I think this is a product of the NCAA being so stubborn for so many years and, and being almost an antiquated system for so many years where they were so dead set against athletes going out and making their own money. Um, it, it, and w- once it was finally legalized and once it was finally allowed and sanctioned, um, you know, we're kind of in this brave new world where everyone 
um, is a celebrity. Everyone is an influencer where if they would have just maybe relaxed these guidelines back in the nineties, uh, we might we we might have this thing figured out by now, and and it was a much different time back then. Well, they're kind of saying this is the start of a discussion, at least. But to Guy's point, Ohio State, for example, reported two hundred fifty two million in revenue last year, while the neighbor Ohio University twenty nine million. Yeah, right. That's a big difference. Yeah, and and it's not like that. The the MAC is a horribly weak no conference, no. but it is kind of a tier two that is now going to be put almost at a tier three, tier four, you know, uh, guy on the corner begging for mm-hmm. dimes uh, c- kind of status. By the way, we're going to be talking with President Ora Peskovitz, uh from Oakland University, and i got to believe that she talks to Greg Campy. She's going to have yeah. some thoughts on this. <laughs> Stay tuned for JR Morning coming up next.